Generation Church Podcast. We hope you find this encouraging. Come visit us in South Oceanside. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostle performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money they, with those in need. And they worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the good will of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Steve. In uh, 2007, there was a book that came out. I know, that was 15 years ago. Can you believe that? Yeah, isn't it weird growing up? <laughs> so 15 years ago, this book comes out. It's called Jim and Casper Go to Church. And it's a story about this guy, Jim, who's a Christian. And he takes his friend Casper, who's an atheist. And he takes him to like 12 different churches. And they happen to be some of the most fastest growing or biggest churches at the time. And he takes him on this little uh, tour with him. And then after it, he asks him a bunch of questions about his experience. And the book ends with this interaction where he says, so Casper, you know, do you have any final comments about all that you've experienced? And he goes, yeah. Are you sure this is really what Jesus wanted you guys to be doing? He'd, he'd been to Sunday things, and he'd been to some of the biggest churches in the country, and his thought was, I've, I've read the scriptures with you guys, and I'm concerned. Is this really what he told you to do? And Man, that struck me, because there's this thought that I've had that's sort of clank around in this brain of mine every now and then, which is, did Jesus do all that he did, all that he did that we learn about all the time? Did he do all of that so that we could see each other once a week? Did he do all what he did so that we could sit and hear a hopefully motivational message once a week? Or maybe twice if you go to Bible study. <laughs> Or another time slot, if you're super dedicated and, you know, they got this other thing. And it goes, gosh, I, hold on, that just can't be it. How did, how did this happen? Like, what's going on? How did we get this way? How did, how did church become so much of a, like, in a, a time slot oriented thing? And so that, that question, really, I wrestled with that. And this is coming from a guy, if you, if you hear me talk about my life at all, that kind of grew up going to church, left it far, far away as I could get, and then came back later. And I was just wrestling with, like, what is it? And some of the reasons that I left. I mean, I left church when I was in 
high school, junior high-ish age. And one of the big things, and this is basically every group of middle school or high schoolers, no matter where you put them, but it was just really fake. You know, like that's, unfortunately, that's just the age you're in. You're trying on masks to see which one fits right. And, and then later you turn it, just hopefully take them all off. But I walked away. I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I don't want to do this thing where I show up and I act like I'm something I'm not. But what's been going on? Like how, how I wonder sometimes we, we read what Steve just read. How, do, how are we so much different than what we read about in these pages? And so about 10 years ago, I got invited to be a part of a church plant in Carlsbad. And my friend Aaron Cameron was the lead pastor. The church we were at was sending him out. The elders had, were putting money behind him and, and resources and a team. And so we were invited to be part of his core team. And during that process, we were reading a bunch of books about church planting and maybe looking at church in a, in a different way, through a different lens. And we were looking at church revitalization and church planting networks like Acts 29 and New Frontiers and Soma. And we were looking at what was happening in China in their church, which was exploding in sub-Saharan Africa and Brazil, all these places where the church wasn't like here where it's shrinking. It was, it's exploding in unreached people groups as well. And I'm going, What's going on there that needs to happen here in this real wrestle with all these things? And that was our question, like, what needs to change? And so we planted Groundswell Communities. That was the name of the church we planted. And for the first time in my life, I started to taste gospel community. I started to taste a group of people that knew each other and that were intentionally trying to love each other like family, kind of like the video we just watched we were serving one another. We weren't just showing up to stuff, but we were in each other's lives. We were helping each other through, through really difficult pregnancies and problems with parents or death of parents or childbirth or marital strife or jobs and financial help. I, that was happening. It was crazy. And then on the missional end, we were seeing people come to church in our gatherings that had never been to church in their life or had been at some point and said, I'll never go back. They were coming. We were seeing all that stuff. In fact, during this period of time, I got rebaptized. I had been baptized when I was a little boy, and I didn't really know what it meant at that time, but I got rebaptized because as I looked in Scripture, I saw that baptism was a community event. It was actually just leaving a life of independence and into a family life with God, with others. And I was like, I want to be baptized. I feel like for the first time in my life, I really understand the gospel. I understand the implications of it, and I want to surrender my life to Jesus here. And the yearning that I experienced in that time for gospel community was was experienced I, I saw it and, I, and from that point on I went I I will never not be about this <laughs> like this is so good I want people to experience gospel community so deeply I'm going to be about this for the rest of my life and I still am and thank God I've begun to experience and many of us are experiencing that same reality lived out here in, in many ways but this text that we just read is one of the many scriptures that people will use when they're calling people to a vision of what the church could look like. You've probably, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard someone teach this text, and it's about, look at their early church. Before we get into that, I want to just name and confess something that I have given myself over to many times in this whole church experiment or experience, if you will. There's a, there's a dark side, because in tasting the goodness of God, this is so weird how our hearts will work, but in tasting the goodness of God's grace and community, it can be easy all of a sudden to love what's going on with you and turn hypercritical towards everybody else. You know all those other people and all those other churches that are doing it wrong? You know that vibe, right? Where like, you're not known for what you're for, you start to get known for what you're against. 
it's very easy in any of our hearts to take something that's really good and then all of a sudden use it to be critical of something else or someone else. And I gave into that without even recognizing it. I and many others that I was with in leadership circles gave into this idea called methodolatry. It's idolatry of method. It's when Jesus no longer is our hope and savior. It's the way that we do church. If Jesus is no longer hope and savior, it's missional communities or disciple-making movements or whatever you fill in the blank. It's taking a description of what we see in these scriptures and making it a prescription. There's a big difference, and I want you to keep this in your mind as we go through Acts. There's a big difference between description, what happened, and prescription, what you need to do. Because there's both in scripture, very clearly. There's very many prescriptives, go and make disciples, love one another, all these things. When you take a description and make it a prescription, you can find yourself in trouble really quick. And before I get into this text, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. As beautiful what, what we just read, what Steve just wrote, read, is a beautiful moment in church history. But it's foolish to take that moment and say, if we just do this again, or man, if we could just be like the early church, oh my gosh. And you hear people in lots of conferences, we just got to be like the early church, man. We got to be like the early church. Guys, this was a honeymoon, and the early church was terrible, okay? Let me just give you a few examples. Within just a short period of time, the early church was allowing widows to starve because of prejudice. The early church was mismanaging personnel and time and the distribution of food with people that needed it the most. The early church was lying and hiding things from each other towards leadership we're going to see in a few weeks. The early church was refusing to leave Jerusalem. The early church was, even though Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, they wouldn't leave. They bottled up and wholly huddled it. There was racism and disobedience to go to the Samaritans because are we sure? Can they actually be saved and filled? There was ten, they were jacked up. Guess what? They were just like us. And every other church for all of history. Be like the early church is a romanticized view of a past that never existed. The reality is they were beautiful, and we see beauty in this text, they were beautiful and broken at the same time just like us. There, there, there's beauty here today, and there's brokenness. And me, you, every single one of us. The second thing, and it kind of leads from the first, is you can have all the right methods and metrics, but if the Holy Spirit hasn't produced a new heart in people, you ain't doing nothing. We aren't doing nothing. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, people can be more in love with their dream of community than the community that's right in front of them. I have the... the, the uh, the quote for you, if you want to throw that up, Monday, that little image. Do you have that? All right. But it basically says just that, that you can be more in love with your dream of Christian community than the Christian community right in front of you. That can be the case for anything. Our ideal for something can actually rob us of the very thing right in front of us. Parents, you know this. Who you want your child to be, there it is. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What he's saying is, is that you stop loving people and you only love their ideal for them. That's why I say parents. It's like when you're with your kids, you can want them to be somewhere so far you can't love them right where they're at. That's a problem for our hearts. That's a problem with ideal. We don't give up the ideal, but we need to recognize to live in the present while working towards it. So as we look together, this isn't a blueprint for success that we're going to look at, but, but it can teach us so much about how to experience gospel community 
in our church here and in our lives personally as the ancient church family before us experienced. Okay, so the context of this text. We've been looking at these verses slowly over the last few weeks. It's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. He fills all the disciples in the room, just like Jesus promised he would. The people start to speak out in a variety of languages they didn't know before, all the wonderful things God has done. There's a big roar. There's a big commotion of all these people. So a whole bunch of other people that are in town for Pentecost come running. What the heck's going on? Are these people drunk or what, what's happening? So Peter last week gets up. No, they're not drunk. This is Joel, the prophecy. This was expected to happen. We knew this would happen. And so people's hearts are pierced. And they say, what must we do? And he says, you turn from your sins, turn to God, be baptized. And that section ends with 3,000 people that day surrendering their lives to Christ and being baptized. This, this baptism is a public declaration of something that God has done internally. And so as we read here about the birth of the church, and again, this is the first church. They haven't even been called Christians yet. They were only going to be soon to be called the way. They weren't even Christians. They had no temple. They had no nickname. But we're going to learn a few things about what gospel community entails. And you'll remember these words from the video. But we learned that the gospel community is a family. It's the gospel community are servants and gospel community are missionaries. So let's look at the first one. Gospel community is family. It says in verse 42, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. In every family, you've got parents. And the parents' role is to equip the children in such a way knowing that one day they will become parents. And they will have their own kids and their own families. They'll teach them how to stand on their own feet. And parents know there's a ton of teaching involved in that. And even if you're not a parent, you remember. There's a lot of parenting, teaching, equipping. No, please don't do that. Here's why. Yes, great job. Do that. Here's, you know, there's constantly involvement. But in a gospel community, the apostles were the initial parents here, more or less. They're shepherding the church family. They're teaching them. The Greek word there is didache, or where we get the word didactic, which is doctrine. That they're actually teaching them, okay, here are the things. This is what Jesus told them to do, by the way. He said, go make disciples, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. There's, there's teaching involved in any family, and that's the apostles' role here. And actually, Peter has already been modeling this for us. He gets up and talks, and what does he do? He looks at Scripture, and he draws things out for them and says, guys, look at this. Check this out. Look what the Scripture said. So the apostles are now following in that same pattern. And this is the pattern that Paul talks about in Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. This, this gospel community is not going to be conformed to the culture around them. In fact, it's going to be transformed by God's way of thinking. It's going to be countercultural. And this family is not going to be shaped specifically by either a Roman culture that they're living in or the Jewish religious culture. It's going to be a unique culture that's new, that's been birthed by the Holy Spirit. But it's going to be something that's been shaped by the gospel. We've seen that already in this. And we're continuing in this tradition today as we teach on Sundays and in our groups, and in, whether it's a DNA group or a life group, there's always times of looking to Scripture to draw something out and to, and to help one another apply it to each other's hearts, change us. The church has often been known as the people of the book throughout the centuries. Not just hanging out, which is great, but digging in. What does God have to say about this? What does the text have to say about this? The key is, though, it's not just cold lecture. It wasn't just someone standing up and everybody passively listening. 
Although that happened, we see that in the temple courts. Verse 42 says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. It wasn't teach and go home. It's teach and fellowship. Teach and share a meal. Chop it up. Man, what did, it, what did you mean by that? It's koinonia, this word for fellowship or communion, that they're communing together. There's a knownness that's happening. It's the family table. And he mentions the Lord's Supper. And if you remember the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. So there's a rehearsing of all the finished work that God has done on their behalf. They're rehearsing the gospel together all the time when they're in each other's homes. Which is the next question. Where do they meet? Well, verse 46 tells us. They worshiped at the temple. Speaking, that's the temple courts each day. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. So this wasn't just a, a time slot. It wasn't just a, a, an event that they attended, but it was a new identity. When we, when we say family, this wasn't just some like mission statement thing they put up on a billboard somewhere. This was something they just knew. We're different. We have new desires. Come over. You don't have food? Come to my house. You don't need this? They're reorienting their lives together. They, they made an intentional reorientation. They're also crossing racial boundaries that had never been crossed before. Remember, when the people come running, what do they? They hear their languages. Remember that map we looked at? Those languages were from all over the place. People that did not like each other, but that are all of a sudden sharing the table. And to share the meal, share a table in that culture was to include someone as an equal. And that's happening. I mean, the church, by its very existence, was multi-ethnic from the starting gates. Because this family is shaped by Jesus. They're shaped by people that say, I haven't, I'm not coming to be served. I'm coming to serve and lay down my life as a ransom for many. And that's the second observation this morning, that gospel community are servants. It says in verse 44, they, the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they had, and they sold property and possessions and shared money with those in need. This family is meeting together, and they're showing very costly generosity towards one another. They're praying for one another. But their care isn't superficial. Notice this? It's very concrete. It's not like, hey, we'll be praying for that. Good luck. See you next time. It's concrete. They're willing to sell their own stuff so they can use proceeds to help people in need. Last week, Bonnie was up here because um, Cal and Christina are hosting that three-year-old for a few days of the weekend. She asked for car seats. Remember that? Before I even left, there were three car seats here. I hadn't even left the building. There were already three. People had gone and come back and brought them and dropped them off. Talking to my friend Sam a couple weeks ago about this text, he's like, man, every job I've ever had since I was 16 was because somebody in church found out that I was a young guy that needed work, and they went out of their way to connect me and get me hired somewhere. Allison and I, when we had Lincoln, we were struggling a bit financially. We're not on super hard times, but I was raising support for FCA, and we had new bills with with. Bo and our rent was going up as it always does and we're like man we need a new car we we had two sedans we're like man we kind of need like a family car we could make this work but let's what are we going to do for payment and we had this family that showed up and said hey dad took me out to breakfast he says hey tim um my wife and i've been praying we really want to buy you guys a, a family car would you guys allow us to bless you like that when you see allison driving the parking lot in that pathfinder that pathfinder is a gift 
by another Christian family who saw us and said, we want to bless you. Can we do that? I've lost track since just being pastor here in the last two and a half years. I've lost track how many checks we've written to people that either need help with rent or groceries or, I mean, car repairs. I mean, you name it. How much money I've seen leave here. Praise God. It's like, what else are we doing here if we're not doing that? That's why I love this church so much. The generosity is incredible. Why does gospel community do that? Well, I want to say one thing, as people ask this all the time. This isn't communism, nor is it socialism. It, does, it translates in Greek, they had all things in common, meaning they looked at their stuff as, ultimately, this isn't our stuff, this is God's stuff, so let us steward it in such a way we can bless people. Communism is a government-mandated redistribution of wealth. This is a heart-changed decision. I would like to give my stuff away. This is voluntary generosity. Don't confuse the two. Again, and it's not prescriptive here. It doesn't say, in order to be a church, you must come to the bonfire in the parking lot and bring all your stuff. It was a descriptive. This is what they did. This was a natural overflow of what the Holy Spirit was putting in them. I love what Steve said at our sermon prayer. He goes, you want to find out if you're spirit-filled? How much stuff do you give away? I was like, wow, that's great. The evidence of the Holy Spirit was a proclamation of Jesus and a credible generosity and commitment to other people. Kids ministry, <laughs> volunteering. When we ask for those things on us, you know, because this is a church, you know, we're always like, hey, you'll get involved, sign up, all that stuff. There's a way of looking at that that says, oh, we're always trying to get people to do more stuff. And I, I don't look at it that way. I don't look at it as more stuff. It might be more stuff. I look at it as a reorientation of what the time is you would already be spending on something. I look at it as a, this is who God says we are. I'm, I'm, I would want you to live out of that. That's why it feels better to give than receive. Because we're made in the image of a giving God, a loving and serving Savior. And so when we serve, we're actually living out of the gospel identity that God has put into us. It's so good. I, I, I've, man, I, I love experiencing when people live as a family of God's servant on mission. And there's just something beautiful that happens in gospel community as he works in and through us. And I get to see this. I mean, this is kind of the blessing of being the, the pastor or on staff is like, I get to hear. I get to see the emails tracked of, hey, we need this. Can anybody help? Yeah, oh yeah, we found someone that can help, but they're going to drop it off. I get to see all that. A lot of you guys don't. So I'm telling you, there's just so much generosity and love towards one another in this room. And those of you that have experienced it know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that haven't, join the party. You know, it's, you don't have to look very far to find needs that need to be met. It says in verse 47 that all the while they were praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The love that they were displaying to one another was garnering attention. We know this from early Roman historians, that the things that they noted about the church from Roman, you know, non-Christian secular history, the things they noticed about the church, one of which was the generosity towards one another and the treatment of children that weren't their own, how the church adopted in kids that were not their kids, that were left for dead. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen in John 13, 35. He said, your love will prove to the world that you're my disciples. That yes, it is for us, for one another, but actually it has a missionary purpose. It's actually drawing other people into the family that currently aren't experiencing God as father. And I would even go so far as to say that every soul 
longs for a family. God wired us in such a way that every soul longs for a family, but not a jacked up family like so many of us have experienced. A family like having God as our Father who loves, where we're served, but we're also being able to serve. Some of you are great at serving, but you have a really hard time receiving other people serving you. May I just say, the gospel begins with us allowing ourselves to be served by God. How could you accept a God getting on his knees and washing your feet and you'd say to somebody else, no, it's cool, I got it, don't worry about me. I just want to say some of, your, some of you in this room, your growth will not be you serving others. It's going to be allowing yourself to let other people know that you have a need and allowing someone to help meet it. It's, just, it's a big dose of humility to allow yourself to be served and it will change your heart. And all of that happening was garnering the attention of the community around them. And people, it says, every day the Lord was adding to their numbers. How crazy is that? 3,000 at one teaching, and then every day after that. That's observation number three, because gospel community are missionaries. It wasn't just for them. God had a plan to redeem every place and every person, everything. But the love that the church family was having for each other and the way that it was bleeding over into their city in Jerusalem was inviting the world in. The section ends with that statement. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. It's like people were having, you know, they're taking notice of these things like, wait a minute, you sold that and gave it to that couple down the road? Why would you do that? And they're like, look, I know that sounds generous. I know it's a little bit crazy, but let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. Remember that guy that was killed? That, was, that death was for me. You know, he, he gave everything. Why wouldn't I just give up this thing that I'm going to lose anyways? I'm going to be out of here soon. This was happening in public. This was happening in homes. It also notes that there were signs and wonders. We're going to get into that next week. There's a story specifically about this. But people are being healed. That might draw some attention. It's almost like Jesus is still walking around, except now it's not him, or is it? But it's through different hands and different feet. It's now through his kids. His work hasn't stopped. In fact, it's just getting going. That's what he says. When I go away and the Spirit comes, you'll do even greater things than I've done. This is happening right there in Jerusalem. But it's happening, I know, the text notes, in the temple courts, which is a very public place where people came to gather and dialogue and all that, and in private in homes. This is why in our DNA and our life groups, we're always encouraging, when I'm doing the life group leader trainings and coaching sessions, we're always encouraging our, our groups, like, do your stuff, but it's okay to go celebrate a birthday out. Please go, go to the beach together, have a beach day, do a bonfire, do a birthday party, do a b- barbecue in your backyard and invite your neighbors in. Like, it doesn't... Always, this is generally speaking in Christian circles, we sort of like huddle up and do our thing that's totally inaccessible to the world. What are they doing? They're out in the middle of culture doing their gathering. It's like do your Bible study at a coffee shop every now and then. Hang out, be accessible in your neighborhood. It's okay to invite people in that you don't know or think follow Christ. They just invite them. Hey, we do this thing at our house. Would you like to come? They may say no. Oh my gosh. What will you do if they say no? Because you live? You know, it's like, but you know what? I found people like to be invited to stuff. I mean, it's like, well, they thought of me. We're so fearful of being considered one of those types. They're like, oh, my God, oh, here they come. Oh, shoot, he's coming to my desk. 
he's going to invite me to church again. You know, there are those people. I've worked with them. It's horrible. But it's okay to ask people, would you, hey, I'm doing this thing. You want to come? We're doing a men's retreat. You want to get away for a couple days? We, what do you do to men's retreat? I don't know. We kind of like sing songs and then we talk and then people bicker about Catan and bad trades. Anyway, so. Um, <laughs> but the goal is that we're not just following a prescriptive list from Scripture. We're being the church. That's what they were doing. They didn't even have a prescription yet. They just, nobody said, all right, here's all the things. They'd started to do it. The Holy Spirit was compelling them into this, wherever they went. So what, Tim? So what? I'm so fired up to be a part of a church like this. I've lost track, like I said, of how many ways people are doing this on the everyday stuff and stuff that I don't even know about that you guys are just doing because of who you are. It's amazing. Yet I also know the wrestle of my own heart and likely the wrestle of yours is to make life about me and to stay comfortable and to do the opposite of the things that God would have me do or to live in a different reality or identity than he would want me to live. And as they say, the struggle is real. Why? Well, because family is hard. So as I would say it's one of the biggest reasons people don't engage more intimately is because their family of origin is not a situation that they would like to recreate with a new group of people. So even the fact that we use that word is triggering. Like, I already got away from family. That's why I'm in California. Don't make me go back. <laughs> I would much rather have an affinity group where I see you guys when we surf, and then we wave, and we go home, and I see you next time that we surf, and you guys don't get into my life because I don't want people in my life because then you're going to say weird junk to me and whatever. It's hard. That's why we don't live like that. Serving's hard. It's easier to make life about us. I want to confess from stage, I don't like serving, okay? You know what I like? Uh, hey, uh, a little more iced tea? Yeah, let me get a chance. I can't think so. I love that, man. And they come over and do, 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 do. And then, the, yeah, you want, you want another lemon too? Yeah, you guys are great. You know, you know that, why? Because that feels so good to be served and have to do nothing. It's, it's such an amazing experience. And if you leave me alone, that's where I will drift to. I'm like that rusty old van. If you let go over the wheel, it just starts to like pull to one side. That side for me is to make life about me. Pretty sure that's, that's the, the gear of our, our hearts when left alone, without the Spirit's help, without each other, one another. And that's where we begin to drift to just make life about me. And mission is hard too, guys. Like that tension I talked about, the workplace or your neighbor inviting somebody in. I want people to like me. I don't want to be labeled as that weird Christian guy that invited them to something and then they didn't like it. And now they always look at me weird when they see me. I don't, am I the only one experiencing this or are we being real at the moment? <laughs> Y'all know, okay? And you know the other person that you're like, oh, I wish they weren't Christian. They make all of us look so bad, right? There's all that. Well, first we got to pull the log out of our own eye and then we can deal with specs, Okay. We're that person and somebody else. But <laughs> but look, I got my own problems. You know, I, I, plus, you know, I'm too big. If I listen and you get in that thing, I'm going to be late to my meeting. And I, plus, I, I wouldn't know how to respond anyways because you got that question. I'd have to read a book about how to answer some questions. I don't have time to read, and so I don't want to do that. And I, you know, I'd rather just avoid spiritual conversations altogether. How's your fantasy football team going, by the way, man? You pick up that guy on the waiver line? Yeah. Two points before I close. One, of course it's hard. Of course it's hard. 
it's, of course it's going against what we prefer. Of course it's going against what's comfortable. I mean, here's this weird thing, but would you expect God to show up in your life? And he shows up, you know, here's God, right? God. And he shows up, you know, and he looks around at your life. Man, you're doing great. Keep it going. I mean, is that what we think? Like, Jesus is going to come into our life and be like, all right, cool. So here we go. And, uh, oh, you're killing it already. I got nothing to say. Well, keep going. No, of course. If Christ comes into our life, he's going to be like, oh, here I go. I love you. Okay, hey, we're going to have to work on that anger. You know, like, there's some things here. And like, oh, that was a little hard to give, wasn't it? All right, we need a little heart change in that generosity department, right? Like, hey, I'm doing it. Why? Because he loves us right where we're at. That's what he does. He comes in, I love you right where you're at. I did everything needed for your acceptance and approval. I love you right where you're at, but I love you too much to leave you there. I I came in because I love you, and because I love you, I can't let you stay there. It would be unloving for me to let you stay in that addiction. We have to talk about this. It would be unloving for me to let you treat people that way. We need to talk about the way that you use your words. That's what he does. There's a whole stream of Christianity right now who is basically trying to re-identify God as this cheerleader that comes into your life and goes, oh, you're into that? Cool, great job. You're into that? Oh, yeah. I mean, who am I to, who am I to correct you? I mean, you got it. you're doing so good. That's bizarre. I mean, that's just bizarre just on an intellectual level alone. If God is, if God He's more than truth, but if God was just truth, that's all God was and all of his characteristics. If he was just truth, he'd come into your life and say, there's some things that you should know about that you don't know because I'm God and I have all truth and you have a little slice and so here's some things you should know. Why would we expect that God would come into our life and basically be like, great job, keep going, just do that. Do exactly what you're doing. Who am I to... But friends, this is happening on the widespread how dare you tell me? How dare you use a verse that God would say I could or, or shouldn't or whatever? And it's like, what'd you think he was going to do? You know? Am I the only one that's tripping out on that? I have a lot of problems. I need correction on the daily. This morning, go back and say sorry to Lincoln. That was too harsh. Okay, Lord. Whew, little buddy, dude, daddy shouldn't talk to you like that. I'm frustrated, but I love you. Why? Because I need constant Holy Spirit help in everything. And actually, that's why he's come, to do that very thing. He loves us that much. And that's why my, my, my eyes and my heart was drawn to verse 42, and it says that all the believers devoted themselves. Yeah, have you ever devoted yourself to something? I know you have. None of you are nodding right now. It's time for me to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Devotion is like is the opposite of drifting. We don't drift into holiness, I've heard it said. We don't really drift into more obedience to God. We don't really drift into getting in great shape either, I've noticed. I mean, you're not just going to wake up in a couple months and be just like, oh my gosh, what happened? I'm, I am jacked. What's the, I've just been doing the same thing I've been doing, and all of a sudden I'm just, look like Sean Bailey. Uh, <laughs> Hey. <laughs> I love you too, bro. Uh, no, what, what happens is you wake up after a few months and you're like, dude, I got to change some things, right? 
I got to devote myself. We call it resolutions every January. We devote or we try. We devote ourselves to some new things. In fact, I'm a, I'm a walking experiment of that two months of not doing anything. It's not working. I'm not drifting into shape, I can tell you. But there's a moment where you put your foot in the ground. There's a moment where you're like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. It's not just the doing. It's there's a posture of the heart that devotes, that says, I refuse to continue like this. I, I, just, I just won't do I won't, I won't settle for anything less than God has for me, so I'm going to devote it. You guys want to do this together? The church devoted themselves to these things. They said, no more. No more like that. This, God has something for us. He's made us new. He's put his spirit in us. I'm going to follow the devotion, the things that the Spirit's produced in my life, and I'm, gonna, I'm saying no to these other things. And when God says, hey, look, you're my family, look, you're servants, you guys are missionaries, he's saying, yeah, I'm going to devote myself to living this way. That's one of our core values as our staff team. The, the I and peer is intentionality. I'm going to be intentional. These things will not accidentally happen. I will not accidentally begin to love people. I'm going to intentionalize my calendar to put people that I love that I'm following up with. But make no mistake today, friends. This is not a talk about do hard things. This is not a talk about redoubling our efforts this morning. Although those are an entirely bad idea. Because the main thrust of the text isn't, okay, here's the list. Here's what they did. Now you go do that list. The text is not a devotion to new things. The main thrust of this text is that formerly passive onlookers all of a sudden had new devotions. What the heck happened to them? How did they change? How did they get over some of these like biases and all these things? Something changed. The Holy Spirit came. They got new hearts. They had devotions because they had new hearts. That's what happened in this text. The main thrust of this text isn't what they did. Those are the byproducts. It's the thing behind the thing. What gave them the new devotions? Verse 46 says, a deep awe came over them all. And an awe of what? In awe of all that God was doing. They were seeing God on the move around them and in them, and there was an awe that overcame them. God is doing something, and he's doing something to me, and I feel differently. And they're in awe of the devotion of Jesus to, again, as they, as they celebrate the gospel, they're in awe of his devotion to them. First John 4.10, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we... Surely ought to love one another. This is what they're experiencing. He's loved us this much. He's been this generous to us. Who am I to hold on to my stuff? If you're in here and you don't know Jesus personally yet, this is what he's wanting you to experience. That his love for you would overwhelm you to such a point you can't help but be mesmerized by it and want to give it away. That, hopefully, will be the history of this church. Awe and a changed motivations, changed nature, not doubling or redoubling of efforts, but devotions arising from a surrendering to the Holy Spirit. I want to close with this thought. There was a totally, the word awe is appropriate. We don't use that word very often, but we say awesome, but this church was in awe of everything Christ had done and was doing right in front of them. Make no mistake. This was blowing their minds. They couldn't believe how in the world is God doing this. I, I get the feeling. But they were in awe at Jesus' life, 
death, resurrection, and ascension. All of it. All four. Why do I say all four? Because many Christians don't understand the gospel or all four of those things. Many traditions of faith only talk about one aspect of Jesus' work. First work, he died. Praise God, he died. He died for the penalty of our sins. Beautiful, amazing. God forgives us. He wipes the slate clean. That's great. But if that's all there is, we're in trouble. And many traditions, we're going to talk about death of Christ, death of Christ, death of Christ. Forget. Okay, that's great. But there was more than just his death. He lived a perfect life in our place. He didn't just die the death we deserve so the slate's wiped clean. He lived the perfect life in our place so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees the righteousness that Christ earned on our behalf through his perfect life, fully submitted to the Father, to the law, fulfilling it all. That's what he gives us, life and death. Not just back to square one, but now, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who had no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of Christ. We actually get it imparted to our account as if we were as righteous as Jesus was. But that's not all, folks. It wasn't just his life and his death. It was his resurrection. We're perfectly accepted. We're loved as if we're righteous as Jesus is loved. He died the death we deserved. Death isn't final. He rose from the dead, which means the best is yet to come. That this isn't the end. Christian, brothers and sisters, this is the worst that life will ever get. Thank you. Guys, if you're in Christ, this is as bad as it will ever be. Outside of the other pains, I'm saying this life that we're living now is as bad as it will ever be. And the promise of that is a resurrection. That he has the power to raise us from the dead and seat us with him in the heavenly places and take us home. And if that's not enough, he ascends as well. He doesn't just live the perfect life in our place. He doesn't die the death we deserved. But he raises from the dead and then he ascends. And in John 14, 12, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. He is still at work. He said it would be better that I go so the Spirit can come. He is still at work delivering us from the power of sin that's in our world and in our lives around us. His work has not stopped. He's delivered us from the penalty of sin by his death. He will deliver us from the presence of sin one day. It will be no more. And right now he's delivering us from the power of sin every day by his spirit. That is the gospel power, the finished work of Christ that covers everything. And that's what the gospel community celebrates. It celebrates the gospel that Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving, active tense, everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Guys, we're not just seeing a, a prescription for what church should do. We're seeing the power of the gospel being displayed in a group of people. The saving power of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit. We're seeing the character of Jesus being manifested in a group of people, no longer just him walking around. Because it's, it's not just Jesus with them, it's Jesus in them and now through them. And friends, that's our invitation for today. He gave us a spirit so that we might be part of the greatest thing that's happening in the planet today and forever until he comes back, that we get to be his family, 
We get to be his servants as we serve the city and those around us. We get to be his sent ones and say, come back to know the one that loves you that died for you. Hearts devoted to the one who is devoted to us. That's, that's what we get to do together. Let's pray to those ends. Jesus, we want to be like you. But in order to be like you, we need to be near you. And, and Jesus, what we see in these texts is a group of people that were, many of them blue-collar, many of them have no resume in anything spiritual, but Holy Spirit, you came in and you changed them. You gave them new hearts. You gave them new devotions. You gave them new lives, radically different lives than they were living. And Lord, I pray that whoever really eagerly wants that this morning, that you would give that to them. There would be something in their heart where they just say, no more, Jesus, I want everything that you have for me. Give me a new heart. Change me. Make me like you. Turn us as a church into a gospel community. Make your name famous, Jesus, through our lives in this church. That our words will be your words, not my will, Father, but your will be done. So by your power, Holy Spirit, make us like this. We recognize we can't make ourselves, but you come and you change. And so we say, have your way, Lord. We love you because you loved us first. Amen. 